Well, today, this morning, and this evening, we are honored to have speaking here in our Bible conference, Pastor Kurt Skelly. Uh, I met Brother Skelly a number of years ago. I have preached in his church at the Faith Baptist Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. For 20 years, he pastored the Harvest Baptist Church in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. He's a featured speaker at many Bible conferences, revival meetings, youth conferences. How many of you have heard Brother Skelly at some point in your life? Would you raise your hand? Lots of you have. Uh, He speaks uh, regularly at the Wilds. In addition to his pastoral ministry, he serves as the chairman of the board for Veritas Baptist College, owner of the Land of the Bible Tours, and he is a host of the Everyday Truth podcast. He and his wife have been married since 1998. They have four adult married children, and most importantly, They have six precious grandchildren, and we are thrilled to have him here. I appreciate his love for the Lord, his passion for preaching, his uh, desire to communicate the Bible in a very uh, powerful way, not just to the head, but to the heart and to the life. So would you please give Pastor Kurt Skelly a warm welcome as he comes this morning. What a, what a joy to be here at Bob Jones University. I've been praying for this conference, and I've prayed for you as a group, and so thanks for letting me come. Not that you had any choice in the matter, but uh, thanks for at least coming and being here this morning. Appreciate it. Bring you greetings from my wife, Wanda. Uh, Wanda and I have been married for 35 years, going on 35 years. We have four adult children, as uh, Dr. Pettit just mentioned. Uh, one son that lives in Florida with three of our grandchildren, and one son that is going to start a church. He's a church planner in Florida next year, uh, and he has one of our grandchildren. Another son who's a youth pastor out in Phoenix, Arizona, and he uh, has two children, and then a daughter. We have uh, three sons and a daughter. How many of you, you're the daughter and you're the youngest in your family? Would you raise your hand up? Keep your hand up. Okay, look, look around. Guys, do not date her, okay? She is spoiled rotten. The world revolves around her. She's high maintenance. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, matter of fact, to drop ad week, right? So uh, there you go. Uh, my, my daughter, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. My, my daughter, Hannah, uh, lives in Australia. So uh, every July, I have the opportunity to go to Australia and speak at a, uh, it's a single adults conference uh, that that we started some years ago. It's really gained some great traction. We'd love to have you come. If you ever want to go to Australia, be involved in some ministry, I'd love to have you come. It's every July. Uh, But uh, went to that conference a couple years in a row, really enjoyed it, and then made the big mistake of coming home and telling my adult daughter, single adult daughter, I said, Hannah, I go to this single adult conference in Australia. You ought to come with me. And so, yes, I went to the single adult conference with my single adult daughter and and she met a single adult and they are no longer single. So she met a guy in, in Australia. She lives there. Uh, which is nice for vacation, but it's tough to have your baby girl live so far away. So th- those are my four children. Uh, we have had uh, dogs in our married life. We, we do love dogs. We have not had cats. 
And I'm just going to leave that right there. I don't want to cause undue pressure on anybody, but we have never owned a cat. And I'm not going to visit the snake exhibit. If you go to the snake exhibit, you have some issues. Really, you do. You have some issues. I do like snakes from a, from a long distance. Hey, thanks for, uh, for, for being here. Heard some great uh, uh, news about the message yesterday, uh, uh, Pastor Crockett. I, I, uh, one of the students uh, hosted me yesterday for a short time, and I said, how's the Bible conference going? He, he, he mentioned, I said, how did the service go today? He said, uh, I said, who preached? He said, Pastor Crockett. I said, well, tell me about his message. Well, that's always death to a preacher. Tell me about the message. He said, I don't know what he preached on, but man, he was really funny. So, so there, you, there you made that influence. And then he told me uh, that, uh, and I never knew this. I, I had never heard about drop ad week. I didn't realize that that referred to dating. I did not, I did not understand that. So I asked him the very pregnant question. I said, so, I said to the student, I said, I said so, uh, are you going to be dropping this week? He said, no. He said, I, I, I don't have any girlfriends. I said, okay, are you going to be adding? Are you going to be adding this week? He said, no, I don't think so. I said, well, listen, you know, if, if you don't drop or add, you're not even a student. You're not taking any courses. So can a, can a person that doesn't date even be a student? That's my question. Uh, so keep that in mind. That might be my invitation plea at the end of the message. All of that aside, I want you to look at Psalm 90 uh, this morning in your Bible. I love the theme. I love the theme of Bible conference this year, the steadfast love of God, the Hesed love of God. And all of us speakers have the privilege of speaking on that, that broad topic of the love of God, the Hesed love of God. And Psalm 90 is such a great passage of Scripture to help us to understand a little bit more about this great quality of God. And I want you to look at Psalm 90. Keep your Bible open. I'm embarrassed to say that I came to Bible conference and forgot my Bible. So I got the conference part right, but I forgot the Bible part. So um, one of the, one of the uh, faculty members was gracious enough to give me his Bible. So there it is. So Psalm 90. I want you to look, if you would, at verse number 14. We're going to work our way toward it in the course of the message, but I want to start with it just now so you'll know exactly where we're going. Psalm 90, and look please, if you would, at verse number 14, where the psalmist, Moses, says, Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy. Of course, by now you know that hesed is translated differently in some different places in the Bible here. It's translated mercy. This is the loyal, steadfast love of God. Oh, satisfy us early. This is a prayer of Moses, a corporate prayer to, uh, from Moses to God. Oh, satisfy us early with thy steadfast, loyal love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for this moment Realizing that every day is a gift from you and then each moment is a unique gift from you. And I pray, Lord, in these moments that you would help us to give our full and undivided attention to your precious, holy, eternal, infallible word. I pray that these would be moments of introspection. I pray that you would 
do a work in this service today by your Holy Spirit that only you can do. I pray in a real sense as I speak on the outside that you would speak on the inside. I pray that not one person today would would ignore the truth of this message. I pray that every single person, whether here in this very room or watching uh, via the live stream or even watching or listening at some later date, would receive the message of your word in a in an open, humble, receptive way. Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity of mind. I pray that you would help me to say those things that would be completely consistent with what your word teaches. I pray most of all that this would not just be another service, another message, but I pray that in a deep way you would work in our hearts. Please, God, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Moses only wrote one psalm, Psalm 90. Of course, you don't typically associate Moses with the psalms. If I were to say psalms, typically you would say David. And David did write many of the psalms, 73. But Moses was a psalm writer and he was a songwriter. At least four separate songs or poems Moses wrote. Exodus chapter 15. Uh, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31 and Deuteronomy chapter 33 and then Psalm 90. And so Moses did put words to poetry. He did write songs. Of course, Moses is the writer of the Pentateuch, the Torah. And uh, he's writing this particular psalm when the people of God are in the wilderness. Now, when they were in the wilderness, that really wasn't their best season, was it? Matter of fact, when they were in the wilderness, they were there for all those years, really for one reason. And that one reason was disobedience. God never intended for them to spend so long in the wilderness, but because of their bad choices, that's where they were. And it would seem that uh, that would be a very depressing time. And indeed it was. And David, or rather Moses, speaks a bit about that depression, about that despair in verses 1 through 11. Matter of fact, if you were to read Psalm 90 and stop at verse 11, you would, uh, you would feel pretty depressed. I mean, you would see the high and lofty grandeur of God. You would see the everlasting nature of God. You would see some snippets of God's goodness and loyal love in verses 1 through 11. But honestly, verses 1 through 11 really are depressing. It, it's when we get to verse number 12 and thereafter that we really understand where is Moses going with all, all of this? And even in our times of chastisement, and let's face it, we've all been there. If you're a child of God, you've been in seasons of chastisement in your life. Sure you have. Matter of fact, the Bible says that if you're without chastisement, you're not a child of God. Because God loves his children. God chastises his children. And in Psalm 90, they were going through a severe time of chastisement. And yet, even in this time, Moses was able to point them to and recognize the loyal Hesed love of God. Because even in discipline, God is demonstrating his love. I want us to look at Psalm 90 and look at it, not not necessarily verse by verse, although uh, much of the message will be just that. But I do want us to see some things that we can learn about God, some things we can learn about man, and then some things we can learn about hope. Because I think as we study the psalm, at least as I study the psalm, that's what I learn. I learn some things about God. I learn some things about me. And then I learn some things about hope. 
that even in my darkest times and even in the most severe measure of God's chastisement in my life, there is hope for every child of God. And so let's learn those three things together this morning. Uh, Some things about God, some things about man, and then some things about hope. First of all, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, write this down. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about God in Psalm 90? Understand that Psalm 90 is the beginning of book four in the compilation of the book of Psalms. So you understand that Psalms, uh, there are 150 separate Psalms, and they're categorized in five different books, and each book has a general theme. And so in Psalm, and book number four, the first of which is Psalm 90, the theme of this book really is the sovereignty of God and the suffering of man. And we see it in many and different varied ways, but the sovereignty of God and the suffering of man. And yet we can still praise God. The last of the last psalm of, of book number four is Psalm 106. Here's the way the psalm here's the way that, that psalm begins. Praise ye the Lord, give thanks unto the Lord, he's good, his mercy, there it is, his has said, endureth forever. Verse number 48 is the last verse of Psalm 106, the last verse of this section. And the Bible says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting. To everlasting, let all the people say, amen, praise ye the Lord. And so the book four begins with the everlasting quality of God, and it ends with the everlasting quality of God. So in other words, in spite of all that we endure, in spite of all of our sinfulness and suffering in this present life, there was God, there is God, God is eternal. So notice what it says in Psalm 90 now in verse number one. What do we learn about God? I think in the first place we learn that he is eternal. God is eternal. Look at verse number one, where the Bible says, Lord, again, a prayer of Moses, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Oh, not just now, not just in my present experience, but for all generations, uh, for all of time, well, well, for all of our people's lives. Look at verse number two, before the mountains were brought forth. Or ever that thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. There's something about the 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 Psalms of uh, there's something about the Psalm of Moses here that says, "Listen, I know that in the moment you're suffering." I know that in the moment we're feeling the pressure of God's chastisement. I know that in the moment the days seem long and depressing, but we've got to zoom out of the moment. So maybe you're in the moment right now in your life. Maybe you're feeling as if, man, things are really, really bad in my life right now. And uh, to add insult to injury, they're bad in my life because I'm suffering the consequences of my bad choice. And sometimes what we need to do in those moments is to zoom out and realize that the picture is much bigger than your present trial. The picture is much bigger than your present chastisement. And what Moses is saying here is, God, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And there's something about our thinking that changes when we begin to think in terms of the everlasting and eternal God. I think about uh, Isaiah chapter 57. Where the Bible says that it is God that inhabiteth eternity. I just preached to our church in Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, a passage from John chapter 1. We're working our way through the book of John. We just began uh, four messages into the book of John. 
A couple weeks ago, I preached from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the, the Lagos, uh, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. What, how does John begin? When John says, I want to show you God who became man, verse number 14, I want to show you He is eternal God. He is eternal God. I, I, I'm reminded of the story of of Arthur Stace. Perhaps you've heard the story of Arthur Stace. Arthur uh, was, born, was born in Sydney, Australia back in the 1880s. Arthur was the son of a, a, a drunk. Uh, his mother was a woman of ill repute. And I'm saying that very nicely. Uh, Arthur really just had no hope, humanly speaking. By the time Arthur was a young teenager, he was already an alcoholic. Struggling, living in the streets, begging. Arthur had a a brief uh, stint in the army, but had to uh, leave the army because of his alcoholism. uh, Arthur essentially became a a, a bum on the streets of Sydney, Australia, all during his 20s, all during his 30s. But when Arthur was uh, 42 years of age, he was invited to an evangelistic meeting. And there in that evangelistic meeting, Arthur Stace received Jesus Christ as his personal savior. And his life was radically transformed. He couldn't get enough of the Bible. He sat right on the front row and as the messages were preached, as the Bible studies uh, were given, Arthur just soaked in uh, like, dry, uh, like, uh, like dry ground, uh, the water of the word of God and, and just loved it. Now he couldn't read, he couldn't write, but he loved the word of God. An evangelist came from the United States and preached to that meeting about two years after Arthur Stace received Christ as Savior. An evangelist came to town and he preached a message from that passage in Isaiah chapter 57 about the the everlasting nature of God. Thou that inhabitest eternity. And here's what that evangelist said. He said, oh, that people would understand eternity. Oh, that people would understand the eternal God. Oh, that people would just understand that concept that we live forever and forever and forever and forever, that God is everlasting. Oh, that people would, somebody needs to go through the streets of Sydney, Australia, and proclaim to the people of this great city, God inhabits eternity. When Arthur heard the preacher preaching that afternoon, he knew that God was speaking directly to him. Have you ever been in a service like that? Where the preacher's preaching and you're in a large crowd, maybe like this one, but you know beyond doubt that this message is directly for you. And that was Arthur. And Arthur said, I, I have my calling. I have my calling in life. I want people to be aware of eternity. And what he did is he, he went out in the streets of Sydney in the middle of the night. And he wrote in perfect script. You can look this up. Don't do it now, but you can look it up. And he wrote the word eternity in perfect script, eternity. He'd write it in chalk on the walls. He'd write it in chalk on the the sidewalks. He'd write it in chalk on the the buildings, the prominent buildings of Sydney. And and then he would uh, quietly go back to his home and people would get up for their morning commute. And people would get up and say, eternity, eternity, eternity. What is this eternity? Night after night, he would write the word eternity. Day after day, after month, after year. 
Finally, they discovered who it was and they gave him a little name. They called him Mr. Eternity. By the early 1970s, Arthur, as an old man now, had written the word eternity over one half million times in Sydney. He had made an entire city aware of everlasting eternity. There's life beyond this life. And then he died. And you would think that that would be the end of Arthur Stace's story, but it wasn't. Remember the year 2000? Those of us that are old enough, we remember Y2K and all the hubbub about the computer glitch. And uh, that's just a history lesson for some of you. But, but for th- those of us that lived through it, it was, it, was, uh, uh, it was a big deal. All eyes were on Sydney, Australia. Why? Because uh, they, they are uh, 16 hours ahead of us. All eyes are on Sydney, Australia. What's going to happen? What's going to happen with the computer glitch? Uh, Sydney, Australia has a, uh, a, a tradition at New Year's where they light up the Sydney Harbor Bridge just across from the Sydney Opera House. Maybe you've seen that on Finding Nemo. And there, there's the uh, Sydney Harbor Bridge. And every year they light it up in different colors and different designs. Everyone thought, what, what's going to be the design on the turn of the century? The turn of the millennium. What's going, to be the, what's going to be the lighting on the bridge? Of course, the countdown ensues. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Happy New Year. The bridge lights up. And you already know. The bridge says in the perfect script letters of Arthur Stace, eternity. And the entire world, at the turn of the millennium, receives the message of one changed life. A drunken bum who couldn't read or write, but in whose life God did a marvelous and redemptive work. And his life counted for eternity. I wonder about you. I wonder as we examine the very, the, the very eternality of God, does that even matter to us? Does it matter to us that there's an eternity? Does it matter to us that this life is just but a blip on the screen? Does it matter to us that there's a context so much larger than today or this year or this lifetime or this earth? That's what we learn about God. Moses began with that. A God is eternal. But not only do we learn that he is eternal, I think, secondly, this morning we learn that he is faithful. I love that about the Lord. He's eternal. Uh, Verse number one, Moses actually begins with this. He says, Lord, Lord, thou, Lord, thou, how personal, Lord, thou, thou hast been our dwelling place. You've been our home. You've been our home. Uh, Lord, it's not that you provide a home. Lord, you you are our home. I love the prayer of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians when he said that Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. In other words, that he might have a home in your life, that my home is God and his home is me. That's what Moses is saying here. God, you've been faithful. And Moses is praying at a time uh, when the people of God had been uh, incredibly unfaithful. 
When the people of God had complained and, and murmured and committed idolatry and, uh, and, and wanted to go back to Egypt, and yet Moses still attested, God, you are our dwelling place. And God, you always have been our dwelling place. It's not based upon our obedience. It's not based upon our ability. Uh, God, it's based upon your covenant with us. God, you are our home. I love the message last night. That that home that that prodigal son came back to, that, that was a home that the father had provided for him. And that's, that's God for you. God, God is our, if you're a believer, God is your home. He is faithful. I love the language of scripture when the Bible says in John 1, uh, and, and the word became flesh and, and, and dwelt among us. And you know what that word dwelt means. It means he made his tent with us. We can say it this way. He tabernacled among us. Even now as Moses uh, prays this prayer and Moses writes this psalm, uh, no doubt in view of, of, of his writing is, is the tabernacle itself. That, that tent in the wilderness where God dwelt with his people. God said, uh, you're being punished, you're being chastised, and many of you will die right here, but I'm with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Look at the cloud by day and look at the fire by night and to look at I am here with you. I will not leave you. The tabernacle, the very presence of God. One of the most exciting places I go to in Israel is a place called Shiloh. Shiloh was the first place in Israel where the ark rested. There for 369 years, uh, the tabernacle stood. Uh, 369 years, God met with man right there. I always feel a sense of awe when I take a group or I've gone by myself. And I go to Shiloh and I, I crushed over the hill and I walk down to that very spot, to that very spot where the tabernacle once stood, the very spot. And I sit there and I think, God, in your great sovereignty and your great purpose for 369 years, you put your presence uh, on earth right here in this spot. And I just try to soak it in. In a real sense, God lives in you. You know what that tells me? God is faithful. I wouldn't want to live with me. All the things that God knows about me, all the things that God sees in my heart, and yet God is faithful to me. And he was faithful to them. We learned that, that God is eternal. God is faithful. But make no mistake about it, God is fearful. Not fearful in the sense that God fears, but fearful in the sense of like a fearful storm or a feel for fearful situation. Uh, awe-inspiring. God is eternal and God is faithful, but God is fearful. Notice what the text says, verse number three, thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, return, you children of men. No, turn back to the dust is what that means. Genesis 3 and verse 19. A God that gives life has power to take life away. A God that brings life can, uh, can sentence death upon. And certainly he did. Notice the conclusion of, uh, of the first part of Psalm 90 in verse number 11, where Moses asks the rhetorical question, who, who knoweth the power of thine anger? Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. Remember, I told you that the first half of Psalm 90 kind of leaves you in depression. So we have this great eternal God, and yes, he's faithful, but he's a fearful God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews taught us? 
And boy, there ought to be a healthy respect for God. And there ought to be a healthy fear of God. And there ought to be a, uh, there, there, that ought to be a, that ought to be an incentive for us to live for God. I'm not saying that, that, that God's wrath is the only incentive, but it is an incentive. We've lost that. Matter of fact, uh, uh, we're like those described people in Romans chapter 3 where uh, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Let me ask you a question. Where is the fear of God anymore? Where's the sense of God's holiness? Where's the sense of God's retribution? Where's the sense of that? In our pampered 21st century age, we don't talk much about it. But if you don't understand something about God's wrath and holiness, you can't understand God's love. Uh, You have to understand one within the context of the other. And they're not mutually exclusive. But when Moses writes Psalm 90, he begins by saying, here's God. Great and grandiose. Here's God. A big and faithful. Here's God. But he's not a God to be trifled with. If you're playing games with God, let me just say to you today that God is not a God to be trifled with. The very character of God revealed in his law was but a an indication of just how insufficient and sinful man is. The law never was a way by which p- for people to be saved. You know that. Matter of fact, the Bible says that the law was added. <laughs> Paul taught us that in Galatians 3. Paul, the law was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels and the hand of a mediator. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. You know what the law was? The law was a big arrow pointed at Christ to say, you'll never fulfill this law. This law is like a big old, a full-length mirror that shows you just how bad and sinful you are. And every year as that priest goes in to offer that blood of that spotless lamb, uh, that's going to cover it for another year. But one day, the Lamb of God that taken away the sin of the world, he's going to come once for all and give himself for our sins. No, the law is just our schoolmaster. It's just our tutor. It's just the arrow that points to the fact that we need the sufficiency of Christ alone. The only one who fulfilled the law. The only one that could do what you and I could not do. His work is sufficient. That's the point. Boy, without understanding something of God's attitude towards toward sin and uh, understanding something about God's holiness, understanding something about the fact that God is not a God to be trifled with then we'll never really fully understand and appreciate the hesed love of God embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we learn in Psalm 90? We learn something about God. But there's a second thing we learn in Psalm 90. Not only do we learn something about God, but I think secondly, we learn something about man quickly. We learn something about man. We learn something about, hey, can we make this personal? We learn something about ourselves. Let me just challenge you. When you read your Bible, read your Bible with the mindset, Lord, you're speaking to me. And he is. Not all the Bible's written to you, but all the Bible's written for you. And you ought to read the Bible with a sense of God. You are, you, you are teaching me something here. This is for me. Oh, how love I thy law. Look at verse number three. We learn something about man. I think, first of all, we learn that man is temporal. You know that, but watch how God says it. Verse number four, a, a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past as a watch in the night. Interestingly, this is the only one of the verses in Psalm 90 that's quoted in the New Testament. Second Peter chapter three and verse eight, where the scoffers of Peter's day were saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. 
For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment. Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. This is an important verse for us to consider. And that is that, that, that God sees things chronologically much different than you and I see things. And God says, your life is this. Watch this. It's this. That's your life. How can I describe it? It's like a, it's like a thousand years to a day. It's like a, it's like a watch in the night, like a three hour watch in the night. He's going to go on and give us some other metaphors. But th- throughout the Bible, God tells us that life is short. Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow. We'll go into such a city. We'll continue there a year. We'll buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what you'll be on tomorrow. What's your life? The only time in the Bible the question is asked. What's your life? What's your life? You ever ask that question? Philosophers have tried to answer that question. They can't. Biologists have a hard time answering that question. Where does it begin? But God answered that question for you. What's your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away for that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. How can we be laissez-faire about life? How can we be laissez-faire about our love for God and our service of him when we realize that life is like this and all that matters is what we do for Christ? Only one life. And so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Temporal. Man's temporal. Verse number five. Thou carest them away as with a flood. They would know all about a flood. They had just seen some things carried away in a flood of the Red Sea. Uh, They are asleep. It's like going to sleep. And uh, you get eight hours sleep, but it's over like that. Or seven hours or six hours. And boy, you, you sleep and it's like I, I just closed my eyes and now I'm, that's life. That's your life. It's like I'm 56 years of age. And you might say, oh, that's old. I'm telling you, it was yesterday I sat in Bible college. It was yesterday I was just getting married. It was yesterday. I'm tell- Where has the time gone? That's life. Some of you are seniors and this is your last Bible conference. You're off into life. I'm going to tell you something. It goes like that. Man is temporal. But not only do I see that man is temporal, I see a man is unfaithful. Look at verse number six to finish those verses about temporality. Verse number five, that in the morning they're like grass which grow up. In the, mor- in the, in the, in the, in the morning it flourisheth. In the evening it's cut down, it withereth. We're consumed by thine anger, by thy wrath, we're troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities. Check this out, verse number eight. Lord, Lord, thou, thou hast set our iniquities before thee. Does that, does that bother you? God, Lord, you've put our iniquities right in front of your face. You know exactly who we are. Now watch this. Our secret sins. In the light of thy countenance. Now God knows it all. 
I was talking to my good friend Marty Heron just recently, and he said, Kurt, I, I just had a conversation with an FBI agent. And here's what he told me. He was doing an investigation. He said, and the FBI, here's what we realize about people. He said, we realize that people have three lives. Everybody has three lives. You think about this. Everybody has a public life. That's the life you allow everyone to see. That's your social persona. The things you put on your, your Instagram page. This is my public life. It's what I want people to know. It's what people do know. But you also have a private life. You have a life that, that your family knows. You have a life that your best friend knows. You have a life that your inner circle knows. You have that life. It's a life that the public doesn't know. And, but if you really knew him, you wouldn't think that way. And what, what, what we're saying is that there's a public life and a private life. But then this FBI agent told Marty, he said, but there's a third life. That, that's the secret life. That's the life your friend, best friend doesn't know about. That's the life that your spouse sometimes doesn't even know about. That's the life that uh, your family would be shocked to know about. It's a secret life. And the FBI agent said, that's the person we're looking for. We're digging to find what is the real, because that's who you really are. You are who you are in the dark. That's who you are. That's who you really are. You are who you are in the dark. That's who you are. Not your public life. That's what you want people to think you are. Not your private life. Uh, that's what you're trying the best to make yourself to be. But no, that secret life. And the Bible says that, but God knows that. He knows every little bit of it. Wow. Man is temporal. Man is unfaithful. That's the point. Man is unfaithful. This wasn't a, a beef that Moses had with God. God, you've been unfair. You've been unfair. I mean, after all, you delivered us from Egypt. And here we are, here we are sitting and languishing in the wilderness. Got to hang out here for 40 years. I mean, come on. Just a, I know we complained. I know we uh, committed idolatry. I, I know we did some bad things. But really, I mean, no, he's not complaining. It's funny how we take great umbrage when somebody says something about us that's not true. Somebody falsely accuses us or somebody misrepresents us and, oh, we kind of rear back our shoulders and we take great umbrage. Like, how could they dare say that? That's not me. But, but I wonder if the real you were on display. Now, we take great umbrage at little things that are untrue, but we, we, we seem to pass over and gloss over the things that are really true that we know about down deep in our heart. What Moses is saying is man is temporal and man is, is unfaithful. And primarily those things are true because man is forgetful. And I think that's really the, the underlying gist of verses 1 through 11. That man is temporal for sure. Man is uh, unfaithful, but man is forgetful. A man looks to God as a ever-present help in current need, but boy, now Egypt is gone, and now the, the, the Red Sea has been crossed, and, and now you know, we don't need God as much as when God, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? God, how have you impressed me lately? And even those people that came to Jesus in John 6 and said, Moses gave our fathers a manna in the wilderness. And, and, and Jesus said, no, no, he didn't. My father uh, gave your fathers uh, bread in the wilderness. And by the way, they ate that bread in the wilderness and they died. 
I'm come to give you bread that you'll never die. I am the bread of life. We'll come back to that. What am I saying? I'm saying, boy, we'll learn a lot about who God is. And the more poignantly you see God, the more effectively you see yourself. And just like Isaiah, who saw the Lord high and lifted up, whose train filled the temple, boy, when Isaiah got a fresh fresh glimpse of God, boy, he got a fresh glimpse of himself. And Moses is showing us God. Here's a little snippet portrait of God. And in seeing God and his eternality, in his faithfulness, in his fearfulness. And who are we? Who are we? What is man that God would even think about us we're little blips, little blips on the screen that are here and gone. And, and the short time that we're here is a time of unfaithfulness and a time of capriciousness and a time of forgetfulness. Why would God ever love me? We learned something about God. We learned something about man. But watch this lastly this morning. You've listened very well. We learned something about hope. I want you to see that because at this point in the message, you're like, wow, you know, this guy is really a negative preacher. (laughs) Look at verse number 12. I I love how Moses makes a a simple and yet profound transition. Would you look at it? Psalm 90 and verse number 12. So I love that. So, so. So what? Well, so, based upon this, so, based upon our unfaithfulness, so, based upon the fact we deserve this, so, based upon the fact that we're waiting for all these people 20 years of age and uh, and upward to die, so, so what? What do we do with all this information? We just kind of crammed in our heads for the last few minutes. Watch what Moses says. So, so teach us. Lord, we need your help because our thinking is wrong. Lord, we need your help because our, uh, the, the whole way that we, our whole perspective is skewed. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. I think verse 13 captures the entire essence of the last part of, ver- of, of chapter of Psalm 90. Look at, look at verse 13 where he says, return, O Lord. God had said to man, man, uh, you're, be, you're being judged. Return back to the dust of the earth. But now man who has seen God in his eternality and now man that has prayed and seen God in his faithfulness and in his awesome uh, judgment, he says, God, return. God, we want you. Return. How long? Lord, now. Return, O Lord. How long? Let it repent thee concerning thy service. God, we want you. God, we want you. I wonder in your chastisement, I wonder in your, perhaps your stint in mediocrity right now, I wonder is there ever a pressing, urging, pulling, convicting sense in your heart to say, God, I want you. When's the last time you had a moment of God consciousness? When's the last time you just got up in the morning and your thought turned to God, God, you love me and I love you. And God, I want to know you. Oh God, to know you in the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings. Oh God, I just want to know. Where is that? There's a group of students in Asbury, Kentucky right now. I don't know much about what's going on. They say it's revival. Hope it is. 
But I'll say this, God is no respecter of persons. And maybe, just maybe, a group of college students said, God, we want you. More than a career and more than uh, you as an accoutrement in our lives, we want you. Oh, God, we want you. Where is that? Where's a passion for God? Where's a, a genuine desire to say, oh, God, I want to know you in all your fullness. Oh, God, I don't deserve you. But, oh, God, would you come? How long? Where's that urgency? Where's that passion? Is it nothing? Is it nothing? No, I, I think that our hope should be in God alone. That's really the point. You want hope? Hope is God. Hope is not getting out of judgment. Hope is not uh, getting God to change his mind about chastisement. Hope is not, no, hope is God. I just want you, God. I want you, and I can have him. He's available. God's knowable. God, God is relatable. God's there. Our hope should be in God. And so with that big rock thought in mind, let me just encourage you to pray these three ways in conclusion. With that big rock thought in mind, verse 13, return, O Lord, how long? Let me just encourage you to, to pray three different ways. Here they are, ready? Here they are. And, and, and this should be your prayer for the rest of the Bible conference. Number one, ask God for a fresh perspective on your life. Ask God to give you a fresh perspective on your life. Now, some of you have your life all planned out. Okay, would you please, in this Bible conference, ask God to give you a fresh perspective on your life. That's verse 12. Teach me, O Lord. Teach me, God, because I don't normally, I don't, I don't naturally do that. We don't naturally have a good perspective of, of our lives. We don't naturally have a good perspective of the time of our life. We don't naturally have, we need God to teach us. Oh, God, teach me to number my, my days. You know, you know, we number, right? We number our years. I told you I'm 56. How many days old am I? I don't know. But God says, quit numbering years. Start numbering days, realizing that I work not in units of years. I work every day. His mercies are new every day. His grace is new every day. Uh, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And boast not thyself of tomorrow. Thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Listen, today is the day. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The point is, you've got one day, and so do I. You've got one day to serve God. And guess what day that is? It's today. And if you won't serve Him today, you're not going to serve Him. We're procrastinators, all of us. And God says, today's your day. Teach me, God. Teach me, God. Ask God to give you a fresh perspective of life. I have a friend who, when he turned 50, he's in his 60s now. He said, well, you know, if I live to be three score and ten... 70 years of age, that I only have X number of days left. So he figured out how many days there were between his 50th birthday and his 70th birthday. Put in the leap years, all that. And he bought marbles, that exact number of marbles. So whatever that is, 8,000 marbles, whatever it was. And he put 8,000 marbles in a big jar. And he put a jar right next to it. And from the day after his 50th birthday, he began to take a marble from that jar and put it in the jar. Dink. 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 I don't know why I'm saying dink, but dink. I saw him recently. He's in his 60s. How's that jar thing going, I said. 
He said, I'm losing my marbles. <laughs> so are you. And so are you. And I don't need to tell you the stories about people that don't live to be 70. You've got one day. That's today. God, teach me that. Ask God for a fresh perspective on your life. If we lack wisdom, we ask of God. He giveth to all men liberally and prayeth not. By the way, that's one of the benefits of trials. That's one of the benefits of chastisement in James chapter 1. Is it forces us to say, God, what is my life all about? God, what are you doing? Oh, God, I need to see this thing differently. That's what Moses was doing in a trial, saying, God, I need wisdom. So do you. Number two, not only ask God for a fresh perspective on your life, and and I would even say underneath that, let let the brevity of life uh, mean urgency, not despondency. It's like the team that's down by 20 points in the fourth quarter. You got two kinds of players. One kind of player is like, okay, we got to go small ball. We got to put, chuck this thing up. We're going to only shoot three pointers. We're going to get back in this game. Why? Because brevity means urgency. Then you got the one guy saying, well, we lost this game. We lost this game in the first quarter. We might as well just quit right now and go to, you know. Let brevity, let the brevity of your life mean urgency, not despondency. Ask God for fresh perspective. Number two, determine to find satisfaction in God's unfailing love. Now, here we are. We've come full circle, haven't we? Determined to find satisfaction in God's unfailing love. Moses said, oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy. Oh, God, may we be satisfied in, what you, in, in your love for us alone. Oh, God, may that be our stay. See, the word satisfy, uh, Moses used that word throughout the Torah. And in the use of the word satisfy, in every other occasion that Moses used this word, it meant to fill, as in fill us with food. The Lord, you fill it, like, like filling, he used it in regard to the manna. That God, every morning you give us food and we eat until we're full. And what Moses said is, oh God, what you've done for us physically, what you've done for us with food, oh God, do that with your very self. Oh God, may we be full of you. May we be full with a rock solid understanding of your great and loyal love for us. But I'll tell you what, when you truly understand that God loves you, period, and there's nothing you can do today to make God love you any more than he already loves you, But when you fully apprehend the love of God in your life, it becomes the greatest incentive. It becomes the greatest security. It becomes the greatest satisfaction you could ever realize. Uh, Paul said it's the love of Christ that constraineth us. Because if we we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto, uh, unto him which died for them and rose again. But when I just realize how much Jesus loves me, when I just realize what the love of God is for me, uh, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother hath need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let's not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. What's, what's, what's John saying? He's saying, boy, when you truly apprehend the love of God, when you truly apprehend who God is and the fact he loves me loyally and faithfully and steadfastly, it changes everything. Oh, God, may that be my determined to be satisfied with the steadfast love of God in your life. 
Ask God to help you to be satisfied. God, it's not what you give me. It's not what you do for me. It's not the next thing on the checklist. God, it's you and you alone. God, I'm satisfied in my relationship with you because everything, tentacles out of that. Ask God for a fresh perspective. Determined to find satisfaction in God's love alone. And then lastly, pray for God's glory. Listen, pray for God's glory to be reflected in your family and work. I should have said it this way. Pray for God's glory to be reflected in your life, in the life of your family, and in the illustration of your work. Oh, look at what it says here in verse number, and I'm rushing a little bit, but look verse number 15. I love how the the psalm ends. He says, make us glad. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us. Lord, may, may our future joys and satisfactions outnumber the days of our chastisement. Verse 16, watch this. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. What's he asking for? What's the psalmist asking for? He's saying, Lord, I want your glory demonstrably. Your, what you can do, who you are, the reputation that you have. Oh God, I want that to be, I want that to be evident. Oh God, would you do something that, that is demonstrably from you? Oh God, I'm tired of seeing the manipulations of man and the things that I can do in this little dot that I call life. God, I want to see what you can do. God, let your work be known. It's the same prayer that Habakkuk prayed. When Habakkuk lamented, Lord, why would you ever judge us with the Babylonians? They're worse than we are. And God had to teach him that lesson. But then finally Habakkuk learned it and said, Oh God, revive, uh, uh, revive thy work in the midst of the years. Oh God, do a work. Oh God, we want to see you. God, do something on this campus that everyone would have to say that was God. That wasn't some preacher. That wasn't some conference. That wasn't some Bible class. That was God. That was God. May God's work be evident here. May God's glory be evident here. That was Moses' prayer. God, show yourself. Look at verse number 18, 17 in closing. And let the beauty of the Lord, our God, be upon us. What, what, what a beautiful what a beautiful verse. Pleasantness. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. God, here's, here's, here's my parting prayer, said Moses. God, God, would you just... I, I, when people see us, I want them to see the beauty of you. I want your beauty to, to, to be on us. I want people see me, may they see Christ. Because the greatest work that God did was Christ. And the greatest beauty that God has is Christ. And Lord, may, may your beauty be upon me. And then, Lord, establish my work. And God, from here on, Lord, may everything I do May everything I touch, may every person I interact with, God, may be a reflection of your work in me. Establish it. God, I don't want to waste one more moment. I want people to know I identify with you 
And I want people to know that you are working in my life. So how about it? We're done. How about it? How about it? Can Bob Jones University be a place that the onlooking world says, "Mm, God's beauty is upon that place. We see it in their attitudes. We see it in their passion. We see it in their uh, single-minded love for God. Mm. Those young people, mm, what a commitment they have. God is at work in their lives. How about it? Oh, satisfy us early with thy steadfast love. Father, thank you for this opportunity that you've given me to speak to these friends, these new friends of mine. Lord, our great prayer today is that this passage would be more than just an intellectual exercise, the assimilation of some facts and characteristics. But, oh God, today I pray that you would do a work down deep on the inside insofar that you bring revival to every individual heart. Oh God, please. May we pray these simple prayers for wisdom, for satisfaction, for blessing. Oh God, imbue us today with hope and expected confidence about our future in Christ. And Lord, may the blip of our lives, may the blip of our lives be used in eternal ways for your glory. I pray.